0: In small churches, especially ones such as ours where membership is emphasized, covenantal, formal relationships with one another, newcomers or guests usually get lots of handshakes. We don't do any high fives or anything like that. But you'll get a lot of introductory conversations. Hey, I've not seen you here before. Uh, in big churches, this doesn't necessarily happen all so much. All, 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 however you're supposed to say that. Get tongue-tied on it. But can you imagine just years from now where there would be a sizable period of growth in this church such that everybody can look back and go, oh yeah, I I remember that time. Uh, This is the kind of time that Luke is is experiencing or, or relaying to them, but not only just average congregants, but can you imagine a particular time where priests would be coming in uh, think of a situation where Roman Catholic priests, maybe all of our monastery neighbors and friends came over here because they believed justification by faith alone now. Uh, the right the right understanding of how to be right with God. Can you imagine just week after week seeing more people in collars, investments show up in our midst being baptized? It would be unique. It would be a seriously wonderful time for us where we see those coming to faith different maybe than we would even experience other congregants who are not in formal ministerial positions. But here we notice that Luke tells us a great many priests were coming became and became obedient to the faith. This is a wonderful time in Jerusalem, particularly now before we get into our text, What I'd like you to do is to, I want to provide you an outline of how I'm going to approach this text, but I want you to sort of step back from your Bible at this particular point and to just think with me, I I know all of us are accustomed to like a, a beautifully leather bound single volume of the copy of the scriptures, but we must understand that in church history that is relatively new in a way, there is... Not this understanding from, especially those who would be reading this originally. Maybe they just had Acts. Books of Scripture came to you one at a time, handwritten copies from a particular person. And so we have a, a huge advantage. We, we think of one single bound, gold-leafed uh, Bible. And thus, we are really used to different editorial helps. You, you should know and remember that as you look in your Bible today, you might have a column of references. You might, well, all of you have chapter and verse numbers. All of you have different page breaks and maybe even a, a heading. None of those things are original. Those are all modern editions so as to help you in your Bible reading. They want to direct you in the right way. Have you ever thought or considered what it is that Luke himself put in the scripture. The original writing that Luke would have had is really small columns and all capital letters with no punctuation. Very difficult to read. (laughs) However, as a writer writing a narrative story, how does he help you grasp acts and what it communicates? How does he as a writer help you go, okay, this is a contained section and, and I can think about Chapters 1 to 6, or uh, in our our modern terminology, chapters 1 to 6, as a, a section of Luke's writing, because he wants you, he wants to write in such a way to aid your comprehension. And truth be told, none of us can hold all 28 chapters of Acts in our head all at once. And so authors, humans like us, also by the Spirit... Cordon off certain sections, and what Luke does here is, in verse seven, particularly of chapter six, he summarizes part of what's going on, and he gives different summaries throughout the book, and helps you sort of package things in a nice way to to know exactly what are the themes really that are that are carrying along this story. What are we supposed to be pulling out? What what theological ideas are communicated. Well, Luke does this. He doesn't leave us guessing. And here he specifically has focused on the word of God. So in the first part of seven, he summarizes and and helps us understand what has happened before. But as any good author, lots of good ones not only summarize things, if they're uh, breaking off sections of their narrative in their book, if they're to write just everything Um, with no paragraph breaks and stuff like that. But they also intend to prepare you to hear what's coming next. And so because Luke does both of these things, the way that we're going to work through the text today is I'm just going to focus on the first half of 7. I'm going to walk through the rest of the text, 8 through 15, uh, or 14, and then come back and and tie uh, it to the second half of 15, even though I've read it all. My goal is to help you Understand what the Bible means. That's every sermon wants to explain what the Bible means. However, I want you all to become more adept at reading the Scripture and seeing how the authors themselves interweave themes and help you understand the the bigger picture of what the Scriptures communicate. And so, the first point that I believe Luke just straightforwardly gives us, is that the word of God succeeds. This is verse 7a. And the word of God continued to increase. That's what we're focusing on. The second half is it increases in another particular way. So here, as a reminder, there was a deliberation. The, there was a problem that needed to be solved, and the office of deacon was created in, in a, a primary and, and first way, uh, although that'll change somewhat in later days. There is a decision that's made by the congregation. And what they say in verse 4, the apostle says, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word this is their conclusion it pleased the congregation they're like yes that is right for the apostles to do now seven verse seven well what happens well the word of god continues to increase luke wants to tell us about this first sense of growth first of all it prospered this was a right use of time Of the apostles. This was a good and faithful decision. There are those in the church who have been given to give their lives to the study of the scriptures and to teaching. This is what causes the Word of God to grow. The first sense in which that occurs to us, which is most natural, how does the Word of God increase, is sanctification. First, it causes us to become holy. The apostles devote themselves to the word so that specifically they might feed the sheep or lead them into green pastures or beside cool waters and help restore our souls, as Psalm 23 says. In other words, the word is effectually working to sanctify and to grow the strength of the flock, not necessarily numbers at this point, though that's the second part. Um, it is to strengthen us in the knowledge and the trust of God and in obedience this is what is happening increasing of the Word of God but how does that happen just they devote themselves to preaching and then they preach and then magically we're all transformed <laughs> not quite it also includes attentive and prayerful listen listening to the Apostles' public teaching and their private counseling. It involves taking the apostles, uh, dedicating themselves to the word of God so that they might be faithful in teaching through the different biblical modes that are there. But teaching is not a one-way street. There are teachers and there are students. The students, the disciples, don't grow if they don't listen. It doesn't happen. And so a quick application is, Since I'm the main preacher, do you take pains to listen to my sermons? Have you prepared yourself on Saturday evening to hear the Word of God? How about Sunday morning? Have you read the text of Scripture that we're going to be in? You know where I'm going. I'm just in the next text, always, (laughs) almost always. And sadly, I know that there's my generation, a past generation, we have not been prepared and taught to come to worship, expecting part of our worship to be the active, attentive listening to the scriptures so that I can do what it says. This is my act of worship, which is not to have a feel-good message by a skilled entertainer, I assure you. Lots of messages that I preach will not be feel-good, nor am I a skilled entertainer, (laughs) so you won't get that here anyways. In this church, you should be listening to the voice of Christ spoken by a humble and unsophisticated tongue as myself. We should be looking to see whatever conforms and fits with the word of God and to be seeking to live in light of it. You should come to every Sunday anticipating how the word of God gets into my heart into your heart so that it transforms you. Otherwise, you will not grow. The word of God will not increase in your life. You will remain immature in the faith because God has appointed authorities for your blessing and your feeding Secondly, <clears throat> this we'll focus on at the very end, but there is increasing of the Word of God in that disciples are multiplying. The Word of God is being received in hearts beyond those of the saints. Uh, those who are outside the congregation are becoming saints, they are becoming Christians and multiplying that way. Unless we overinflate the numbers ourselves, even though this is a period of great growth, he does say that it is restricted at this point. In Jerusalem. Now, this is isolated. It's not like it's exploded across the globe yet, not as it has in the past 2,000 years, but it is certainly in Jerusalem exploding in the amount of disciples that are coming to the faith. So let us pause on that thought and let us focus on Stephen for a little bit. This is point two Deacon Stephen. Read verse 8 with me. It says, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Now, we know that Stephen was just appointed as a deacon. He's not an apostle per se, but nonetheless, we're told in verse 5, two things about him, that he's filled with faith in the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 8, it's reaffirmed that he's full of grace and Power, specifically, that's seen in him doing signs and wonders among the people. It's really kind of hard to categorize Stephen because he's then going to go off and be an evangelist in a particular area. But whatever his category is that we can fit him in, maybe Paul, I just throw this out there for your pondering. Maybe Ephesians 2, 3, and 4 talks about New Testament prophets. Maybe he's one of those. I'm not sure. But nonetheless, what is recorded is that he is doing signs and wonders. He's being supernaturally used by God in the last days of the old covenant era, which we are past at this point. As Peter shows us from Joel 2, it was prophesied that those particular days, not our days, would be set apart distinctly for signs and wonders, which don't occur in a normal fashion. In fact if they did occur in a normal fashion, even in that day, by all the church, then Stephen's not notable in his signs and wonders since everybody's doing it. But no, the apostles and particular others, individuals, are standouts in the way that God is using them in that particular day and age. That's why they look like they have a a super powerful ministry in ways that others do not. Now, I say this as in a... Uh, as a quick application, I feel like I have to defend a position often. We have Bethel Redding down the street who uh, teaches some crazy wonky things, and so I feel like I always have to defend, and I can only say one part. Let, Let me just apply this to healing today. Christians always receive healing supernaturally because God is working all things in us, and Yet, at the same time, we recognize that God ordinarily uses the means of prayer and providence and faithfulness. It doesn't always look, and by and large, it doesn't always look like some huge impartation of power separated from normal means. No, it comes through normal channels. So, for example, we've had a number of people come and we've laid their hands on them as elders because they've called us to do so. We've prayed and they're not sick anymore. Uh, This has happened a couple times, but that's the normal occurrence. It's not the supernatural thing that's happening with Stephen. Stephen, just like Peter was earlier, has this extraordinary measure of power that God is using him in this particular way. But that's not why people are rising up against him. What is it? That is bothering the synagogue at this point. Read with me verse 9. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedman, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. Now, not only was he being used in signs, but the reason they know him is because he is a preacher he he has a message that he's preaching and he's widely known enough so that there's a group of people who need to come and make formal arguments against him they want to tear down his message though they can't tear down the signs that he's doing and we'll see they can't tear down his message either This opposition is a large group of people. You see, maybe these are all synagogues, at least one that we know of. However, I understand this is synagogues in these different places, although there's a couple ways to do that. And one of them, Luke says, this is the synagogue of the (laughs) freedmen. Certainly, the original hearers would recognize it, though I don't know much about it. Luke, I believe, intends to do this with the sting of irony what you're going to see in the scripture itself is that the, 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 these men are opposing the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not the case uh, that they are freed men. They are, in opposing the gospel, are proving that they are enslaved men. They are enslaved to their sin and they are opposing the message of life and freedom. And so he is going to use them very carefully to show the Jewish opposition of the day and show how they're blinded in their sin. We've seen this come out again and again and again. So they do this thing, they remonstrate. Uh, You might not know that word, but it's a good one. You should write it down and, and use it in your vocabulary. They're going to protest and they're going to say that There's not biblical argumentation that's happening here. They're going to protest and draw attention to an unbiblical message, or you can say a false message if you apply it to other contexts. They're going to remonstrate with him. But I love how Luke describes this. Listen to verse 10. He says, But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Stephen knows the scriptures and that's going to become evident. I encourage you to read his huge long sermon, which gets cut short in chapter seven, which will likely be in next week. Uh, But here we see that Stephen knows the scriptures and the argumentation that they bring so as to pull down the word of God gets bowled over by Stephen. He Powerfully refutes those who would contradict the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're bringing arguments, and he's just shattering them. It's beautiful picture. He is this skilled arguer, and what he does is not just rhetorical flourish. It's not just that he's eloquent and good with his tongue, though he may be. Mainly, he can show, well, look what the scriptures say, and we'll see. He can quote scripture after scripture after scripture and show he knows what they mean. This is good biblical argumentation, and this is even something that we need to be prepared. He's not an apostle. He's he's a deacon, and and that is not the highest standing in, in the church, yet God is powerfully using him. We should take this as an encouragement to us to likewise be able to show what the Bible teaches, and be able to explain its meaning and to refute those who would contradict the truth of the Scripture. Now, although it's evident that he knows the Scriptures and what they teach, and he's powerfully preaching the Gospel and teaching it in the public square, what happens then? Do the Jews then say, we need to repent and bow the knee to Christ and accept the Gospel and be baptized? No, there's a great and increasing hardness on the, on the Jews at this point. Verse 11, read it with me. It says, then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. These Jews did not repent. They were hardened in their rebellion. They all the more found reason to do what is sinful, and they used a corrupt tactic. I think a better word, even than secretly instigated, is suborned. You don't use that word? I don't really use that word, but it's a good one. Suborned. It essentially means secretly instigated, but specifically to violate a law or the law of God in this point, you'll notice that what they induced men to do behind closed doors is go break the ninth commandment. They come and bear witness that is not true about Stephen. What they went behind closed doors to, to suborn men to do is to come and disobey God's law and not make that known to everybody else. They are going to bear false witness so as to get this guy in trouble because they can't handle his arguments. They're being knocked down. So what do we do? Well, we're not going to repent. We're just going to figure out some way to throw you in jail. Terrible. And the irony is that they claim that he is blaspheming blaspheming Moses and God. So not only have they suborned men to break the ninth commandment their claim is they're breaking the third commandment (laughs) the hypocrisy is thick they take the name of god in vain by not being truthful god's name is truth and they as image bearers of god act in a lying way they're taking the name of god in vain and they trying to pin this claim of blasphemy against Moses and God, or at least that's what he's speaking to. And yet at the same time, they are subverting God's moral law as they treat God, even though he's a universal lawgiver, as though they are unable to be legislated over. Yeah, that, that command, I don't have to listen to it because, you know, this guy's saying the wrong things. And so they become the lawgiver and the judge themselves uh, Moses and God, I won't unpack it here because it, it gets unfolded below and we'll cover it in verses. But I also want you to notice that these guys are what we would call trolls. They're called trolls. They, they weren't quite finished, uh, doing what they needed to do just by making claims, they needed to gather support around them because they needed to get this guy taken out in some particular way. And some of you, I'm sure if you're on social media at all, you've run into what we call internet trolls, and they do the same exact thing that's being done here. They, a troll is a a person who posts things of an inflammatory or insincere nature to get like an emotional response get people all lathered up and hot and bothered. And you'll know if you go into, uh, well, you could just go all over social media today, and the Christian social media conversation is Christian nationalism. And there's just certain things that, regardless of my position, I could go on there and post and get people flying off the handle because it's just like somebody who wants to be a button pusher. Well, this guy... These guys who've been suborned are being trolls. They're like, hey, I know it's going to make those Pharisees mad. Hey, I know, it, I know it's going to make, make uh, some of these others mad. Just, uh, if we pin blasphemy on them, we can get the scribes all, all angry and stuff, and then they're going to come and, and make this guy a villain, and then we can get him out of the way. That's a tactic that's used in our political day-to-day all the time. Just watch the news for a little bit. So this guy is, uh, by trolls, is causing to be vilified, and he's public enemy number one. So the council, these, these different groups represented, go and like, we're going to go seize him and take him to the council, which is not a good situation to be in at all. This council is the one who's like doing the same exact thing. Hey, you know, a notable sign's been done Peter, this lame guy has been lame his whole life. Now he's walking. We can't deny it. What are we going to do? We're going to threaten him, okay? Make sure that this word doesn't spread any further. You can't speak in the name of Jesus anymore. That didn't work because, <laughs> well, the second time, <laughs> they got let out by the angel, if you remember. And the angel goes, go preach this word again in the temple. <laughs> and so they can't be stopped here, but they are being brought towards people who are partial and already hardened against the gospel. So he's finding himself in a pretty bad situation, which should catch your attention for maybe what's going to happen in chapter 7. But they're all frothed up. And we should just note that this Stephen is no doubt being put in the situation that Jesus already prophesied. Jesus had prophesied in Luke 21 that they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and to prison, You and you will be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. This is what he's going to do in chapter 7 just as Jesus had predicted. And he is Christ-like in all of his actions thus far, full of spirit, full of wisdom, refuting arguments for the sake of the gospel. Wonderful. Pause on, on that word. Let us, for sake of time, let us go to their claims now at this point. This is verse... 12 through the end, and I'll, I'll wrap in verse 7, second half of 7 in just a minute. Notice, well, let's, let's read these that we didn't read yet. And they, and they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, temple, and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, and, and gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Notice that their claims are pretty clever, but they are what we call straw men. I don't know if you're used to that term, but in argumentation, there's are They are setting up an argument, which is partially true, but it, it really sort of misconstrues the understanding of what the argument actually is. It's not wholly false, but it's set up in such a way as to be totally misunderstood. You'll notice that they use two words. They use, this man conti- uh, never ceases to speak against the temple and this law, and that Jesus' destruction of the temple and he's going to change the customs of Moses, the way that it's set up is to think that these things are being wholly rejected. There's a new sort of religion coming in. And um, so this is supposed to get people stirred up in the same way. It's not an accurate representation. It's not as though Stephen would say, yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. He's like, ah... You kind of misunderstand me, although you're using some of the words that I've used. I cannot agree to those. And just as a quick application, it is a perennial problem in interpersonal relationships, especially in marriages or in anywhere, to not represent the other side in words that they can agree to. You have not fully understood the other person unless you can say words that they would go, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. If you can't represent somebody rightly, you, you have no ability to critique their position because you don't fully understand it. And Christian charity and Christian truthfulness requires us not to do this, not to break the ninth commandment in that way. We have to uphold the truthfulness of the other person in representing them well. Now, this is a good tactic because... It takes longer, and it's harder to overcome objections where you have to say, well, kind of, but not really. And at this point, uh, they say two things, that he speaks against the temple and the law, or you could say the customs handed down to us by Moses. That would be everything listed from Genesis to Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible, and there's a a huge number of things that they would have been talking about but just to summarize it would be um, the law that's a shorthand way of saying it or the customs of Moses that of the tabernacle and many such things now we have already seen that these witnesses are not worried about truth they're just trying to get Stephen indicted but What we see, I want to bring back to to verse 7. It says, The number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So unlike my initial introductory picture, where I had Roman Catholics coming in and getting converted to the gospel, these are old covenant priests, who are ministering in the temple and they are dissimilar to Roman Catholic priests in this sense, they're not coming from a a totally different religion. They're actually coming from the same religion. Hear me. Uh, Let me finish my whole sentence before you go. Well, Fred, Jews don't believe the same things that we do. Yes, I understand this. The old covenant ministers in the temple before Christ came, we're saved. Abraham's saved. All of them are saved in the, same, in the same way that we are, by faith in the mediator. They didn't know his name at the time, and they didn't, uh, they didn't think their works saved them. They trusted by faith in God, and they obeyed his ordinances. And some of those involved becoming a priest because you're from a certain tribe, and you're to offer sacrifices in the temple. And these... By virtue of Christ's sacrifice, which is, which is full of merit, even is counted, uh, sort of retroactively, to those in the old covenant. So the virtue, efficacy, and benefit of Christ's redemption, which doesn't come until he takes on flesh and he dies for sinners, although it's not complete until that time, It's applied to Abraham, it's applied to Isaac, it's applied to Jacob, it's applied to David. All of them were saved by Christ, even as they participated in types and shadows. They were a part of a temple system which looked forward to the real thing. So these priests, what is going on is that the temple, yes, it was prophesied by Jesus to be destroyed not one stone left upon another it would be a judgment that falls upon unbelieving israel and jesus with no no words that you can get around says that all these things will take place in this generation you'll not pass away until all these things happen and therefore it happens 70 A.D. the temple's knocked down But these priests before that time are hearing the gospel and they're leaving their temple service. Why is that? Why are they offering the sacrifices their whole life as they've been instituted in the temple? Why are they hearing what's said and leaving? Not to a different religion at all. They are not leaving the temple at all. In this sense, they are coming to the cornerstone of the new temple that is in Jesus Christ. They, as Peter says, are you yourselves like living stones are being built up into a spiritual house. The church of the living God is the temple. It is the place where God dwells. The old temples were placeholders for the reality that comes in Jesus Christ. God dwelling with his people is not limited to the temple, nor is limited to this tiny little place that we call the Holy of Holies. When Christ Jesus dies, the presence of God, which is walled off by a curtain, is torn in two. The presence of God, which was reserved exclusively for the high priest and they tied a, according to tradition tied a belt around his waist because if he dies in there we got to pull him out that holy presence of god through christ jesus was only experienced by them and yet at the same time what christ does is opens up the presence of god and sends it global Here, we experience what the high priest in the Old Testament experience once a year, every Sunday. We are the new temple. The old stuff is gone. It will always remain gone. The Spirit of God will never dwell in temples made by hands like that ever again. We have the real thing. They saw The preaching, no, it's the temple is, though God's presence really dwelt there, it was also pointing forward to something greater. Christ has come, I have what's greater. There's nothing to go back to, the writer of Hebrews will say. They aren't all out, let's think about the law and the customs of Moses, the sacrificial customs, the priestly customs. They, of course, aren't rejecting the customs, that came before by Moses. They're not saying, nah, not that old way. Rather, they are saying that Christ has fulfilled these customs and we are actually a part of these customs in a new invigorated way. We we come to the fulfillment of them such that Christ is our Paschal Lamb, as he said in Corinthians, or he is our high priest, as it is argued in Hebrews In his once for all offering, he is both the the one who makes atonement because he's a sacrifice and the priest who inaugurates and completes the work of the high priest. He is sacrificer, priest. He has come to do what the high priest in the old covenant could never do. He could never make an end to sin because The blood of bulls and goats do not represent humans the way that they need to in order for it to be fully efficacious and once and for all. So Peter says, if you want to go to this verse in your own time, 1 Peter 2 and the one that I quoted also says that we are being built up to be a spiritual household to be a holy priesthood. Priests are leaving and they're not leaving the priesthood. They're entering into a greater priesthood. They're not leaving the priesthood. They're just coming to his fulfillment. And not only that, he says to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are a priesthood in Christ because he is our high priest. And we are a sacrifice. Romans 12, one famously says, offer your bodies. You yourself, not an animal, you're the sacrifice now. You offer your body as a living sacrifice. They're not going to lesser. They're not rejecting the old things. The priests who were converted didn't leave for something different, but better. Better in every way. A better covenant built on better promises with a better mediator. Hebrews 12, as we have read, I should bring it back to the song we sang. I didn't choose the songs. Uh, but it was perfect timing. Uh, We will feast in the house of Zion. That's talking about future, but I just point out to you also, when you sing that, you should also be thinking of every Sunday because that's what we're doing. Hebrews 12 says, we already have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God. Past tense. You have come To Zion. What did the converted priests see? What did they know in Christ? They saw that all of this repetitive sacrifice, all of these old covenant rites that were performed year after year after year, now had come to their consummation and fulfillment. All of that old has not been done away with for no purpose. It was anticipating Christ. The same could be said about Moses. You remember already that Luke had said, Moses himself said that there's another prophet that's going to rise and everybody who doesn't listen to him is going to perish. And Jesus is that greater Moses. Or we could look back to Luke's gospel and on the Mount of Transfiguration, Elijah and Moses are talking with a transfigured Jesus shown in all his glory. And what are they talking about? Luke tells us out of all the synoptic gospels, he's the only one who says this, but he's talking, they're talking about the greater Exodus. It's the word that's used there. Greater Exodus that's in Jesus. (laughs) Moses talking to the greater deliverer. They have come to everything better. And so this last phrase Although it's unique in the New Testament, uh, all the people in the council, once he's brought there, are looking at Stephen and his face is like that of an angel. You don't see that anywhere else in the New Testament, but I don't also think it's that hard to interpret. Where do angels stand? Who are they ministers of? Well, they minister in the presence of God, and they are angels. That is, they're messengers, as it were. They're ministers of flames of fire, doing God's bidding. They are Um, reflecting God's glory. They stand in his presence. And I think it's warranted to say, just like angels reflecting the glory of God, that's the sort of thing that they're seeing. What they also see is the same thing that was in the old covenant. Moses, when he's in the presence of God, just like angels are night and day, starts to shine as he walks out of the tent of meeting. This is the idea. There is an ironic scene here where, this man who has been speaking clearly in the presence of God, just like an angel, they look at, at him and they're intent on him and seeing this. And there's no doubt. You can just see it on him. He's been in the presence of God. Just as the apostles, it's clear that they had been discipled by Jesus. They've been under this man's ministry. And so he's about to give his statement. But his very presence itself shows that their witness is not true of him. His just standing there, having been receiving, receiving and preaching the truth of the gospel. His, his, uh, what seems unseen is now seen. He is marked by God in his scriptures. Well, that's where I want to stop today. But um, I want to. Make-